Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Let's talk about birth control and how we talk to our patients about birth control. So a couple things I usually tell all students is I, there's too much to know about birth control. It is choice overload for most patients. So usually what I like to do is start with a brief overview of all of the different options. Once I kind of know what their priorities are, I can describe the things in more detail that I know are their priorities. So usually um, I start the conversation by asking them sort of what their birth control goals are, if they have any secondary goals besides just contraception. Um, maybe they have heavy menses that they want to control. Maybe they are um, more concerned about being covert about their birth control, which happens more often than you would think. Um, maybe their partner wants them to get pregnant and they don't want to be. Uh, so they need something that can be kind of hidden or discreet. Um, maybe they want to make sure they never, ever, ever get pregnant again. Or maybe they have health concerns. Um, they have a family history of breast cancer that they're concerned about, and they want to talk about that and what birth control can be used to, um, what the birth control effects would be on that. So usually, especially in like a postpartum setting, I'll enter the room and if I know we need to talk about birth control, I'll be like, all right, we're at our 28-week visit. That's usually when I sit down and make a mental note that I'm going to talk about birth control and say, all right. Have you thought about what you're going to do um, for birth control after baby? Sometimes women will say, yep, I know what I want. Here's what it is. All right. That's okay. And I usually at that point will say, do you, um, do you want to know more about all the options or you feel like you are really set on this? And if they're totally set, I'm not even going to go into it. But most of the time they'll be like, sure, tell me about all the options. And I'll run through the list. Um, if they're unsure, I'll often ask them a question of when do you think you want to have your next baby? And I ask them that because there are certain methods that are really great for people who are planning to have a short interval pregnancy, even though we don't recommend short interval pregnancies. Um, and there are other methods that are far more cost effective and logistically effective, um, for longer interval pregnancies, what we recommend, which is at least 18 months. So... We talk, and then I usually start the conversation. I almost always actually get a cheat sheet. And by the cheat sheet, I mean there's a bedsider.org. Um, bedsider.org is a phenomenal nonprofit organization that is only geared towards birth control and sexual health. Um, they have sections for providers, sections for patients, um, patient uh, and partner, both um, exposés talking about the different types of birth controls. Um, all this stuff. But one of the things I like the best about it is they have a couple really, really good tables that are really helpful for patients who are a little bit visual and who don't know a whole lot about birth control, which is, let's be honest, most of our patients. So um, the way I tell them, I usually talk about birth control and I have this um, chart out and it's on the links below. It says, how well does birth control work at the top? And it splits your birth control into three tiers of effectiveness. And I, I like to talk about birth control in terms of effectiveness because like I said, there's so much choice overload. People don't know how to put birth control things in the right bins to even begin eliminating options. So I usually say, all right, I'm going to start with the most effective. The most effective is um, serialization if you do the right kind, meaning usually it's a bilateral salpingectomy these days. Or for men, I always mention you can always get a vasectomy. Um, 
Even though I'm an OBGYN, it is my duty to make sure I talk about his sterilization options as well. For most of our patients, they're going to say, well, I'm not sure I'm done having kids. And so that one's off the table. And then I say the next most effective things are going to be IUDs and the next one on. Um, and I think about those things in a couple different ways. Number one, most of them have a hormone and only one hormone though. So birth control pills and most of the other birth control options have two hormones. They have estrogen and progesterone. So the Nexplanon, the um, Skyla IUD, the Mirena IUD, the Liletta, the Kylena, all of the new ones, all of those are progesterone-based hormonal IUDs. Those are, um, the progesterone is really good because it thins out the endometrium. So I tell patients it really thins out the lining of your uterus and it's the lining of your uterus that sheds every month to give you periods. So if this does its job really well, you won't even have a period. So a lot of women are going to become amenorrheic on the Mirena, the Liletta, um, the Kylena, all of those uh, levonorgestrel-based IUDs. The rate of amenorrhea is slightly lower if you look at the Nexplanon, which is the arm implant. Um, and think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? The progesterone, if you put it right next to the, the lining of the uterus, is going to be a little bit more effective at thinning out that lining than if you put it all the way up in somebody's arm. Um, putting it up in their arm also puts them at a slightly higher risk for having spotting. So I often say, I'll tell you the best and the worst things about each one. So the Nexplanon, the best thing is that it is an easy insertion. It's a tiny bit of lidocaine in the arm and it goes in like a big flu shot. Um, and it lasts for three years and it's 99.9% effective. It's very effective. Um, it's easy insertion. The downside being you have some irregular bleeding. And so that's the number one complaint I get about it is that you get some irregular bleeding. Um, a lot of times we can fix the irregular bleeding with medications on top of it. Um, if they do fall into that and a small percentage of women will become amenorrheic and have no periods with the next one on, but it, the bleeding is more of a problem, but for the young patients who really are averse to an IUD because they're, um, nulliparous and their cervix is closed and it's going to be a more painful insertion for them, or they've just never even had a pap smear, much less, you know, a long speculum exam, like an IUD insertion, it can be a really good, highly effective option. All right. So then let's talk about the IUDs. And I'm going to talk about all of the levonorgestrel based IUDs together. So, um, and we'll just call them Mirena for short. So all of the levonorgestrel IUDs, um, are the plus side is you get at least three to five years of great pregnancy prevention. Um, on top of that, a lot of women, so um, 20 to 60% of women, depending on which device you use and how long you have it in place, are going to become amenorrheic. And each year, additional women become amenorrheic. So even if you're not amenorrheic at one year, you've still got a shot at two years. Even if you're not at two years, you got a shot at three years. Um, it's it's all a spectrum and it all depends on how thick your endometrium was to begin with. Um, I have a slight suspicion, although it hasn't been proved in literature and I haven't found a good database to do this on, but I have a suspicion that it also depends on what timing of your cycle you put it in, like how thick your endometrium is when you put the IUD in, but TBD, I'll get back to you on that. Um, and then over time, the levonorgestrel slowly thins and thins out your endometrium. So the downside with the levonorgestrel IUDs is that the insertion isn't the most comfortable. It can cause cramping. It can be painful. Um, and some women are just very afraid of having something inserted into their body and into their uterus. I always make sure to distinguish because 
This is not, you can't take for granted that people understand this. The IUD doesn't go in their vagina. They will not feel it when they have sex. Their partner will not feel it when they have sex. It goes up in the uterus where a baby grows. Same way you can have sex when you're pregnant. You can easily have sex with the IUDs in place. It doesn't impact your sex life. I have one, overshare, I don't care. It does not, it's fine. So the um, that's the main complaint we get with the IEDs. The other thing I usually tell them is that it can have a slightly increased chance of giving you functional cysts on your ovaries, which can cause some dysmenorrhea. Um, if that happens, they're usually easily treated with NSAIDs and a little bit of symptomatic care, typically not bad enough or big enough that would require any type of intervention. Um, all right, so those are the levonorgestrel IUDs. Your other type of IUD is going to be the Paragard or the Copper. Um, the benefit of the Copper IUD is that it lasts longer than the levonorgestrel IUDs. It can be used up to 12 years. Um, in the U.S., it's approved for 10. It has no hormones. So for women who are just, for whatever reason, innately afraid of hormones, they can use the Paragard. Um, the big downside of it is it can make your periods heavier. Um, so for women who have heavy periods, who have fibroids and have bleeding, who have ever been anemic because of their periods, anything like that, they're not good candidates for the Paragard. It can make your periods heavier and last a little bit longer. Um, but for somebody who just wants to be done having kids, it can last 12 years. So it can bridge a lot of women to menopause, which is really nice. Um, but again, downside, no hormones, or for some women, that's a perk. Those are all the things. So the Nexplanon, the Levonorgestrel IUDs, the Paragard, and sterilization are all in the top tier. The less than one in a hundred women get pregnant using these methods. Um, that those are the best. So if you really want to be sure you're not getting pregnant, those are what you should be doing. The next tier is um, everything that includes the pill, the patch, the ring, and the Depo-Provera shot. In this tier, they label it as six to nine out of every 100 women, depending on the method, will get pregnant in a year. And this is with ideal use. This does not take into account the way people actually use their birth control. So with birth control pills, the way women actually use them, meaning you forget to pick up your next pack, you go away for the weekend and you don't bring them, you don't remember to take them every day, actual usage, it can be more like 87% effective for the pills, meaning 13% chance of pregnancy over a year, um, which... It's not so great if you ask me. That's a big risk. Um, and I don't know. I usually ask my patients point blank, how good are you at taking a pill every day? Because being truthful, I am not good at remembering to even take my allergy medicine every day. I could not be trusted to take a birth control pill every day and actually believe it would genuinely prevent pregnancy. Um, and you would think being a doctor, that would make me responsible, but absolutely not. You know, you're on a 24-hour call. I'm not going to remember to take it when I get home. There's all of these life things, especially people who have new babies at home. I'm sorry, you are so sleep deprived and you are running all over the place trying to just keep this other human alive and maintain some variety of, you know, sanity. I just can't imagine how difficult that would be. But if that's what people want, that's what they want. But I'm going to go through the pros and cons of each. So the pill, the combined oral contraceptive, um, this is something that has both estrogen and progesterone. The pro is that it's something that you can stop at any minute. So if you don't like the effects, you're having a side effect, you can stop it. You can take it away. The real con is that, again, you have to take something every day. Um, some women will get a little bit of GI upset, with, especially with the higher estrogen doses. Um, estrogen can be, you know, well, it is prothrombotic. And for some people, estrogen alone is a reason enough that they get a blood clot. Um, there are some risks to having estrogen. So 
I always make sure I mention that. Um, and again, the cost of the pill is slightly higher than the um, LARCs, the long-acting reversible contraception, meaning the Nexplanons and the IUDs that we just talked about, because of the monthly copay will kind of add up quickly. Uh, the next option is the patch. The patch is like a little two-by-two two sticker. Women usually wear it under the bikini line, either in the front or in the back. It um, is worn for a week, and then you take it off, you put another one on, you do that for three weeks out of the month, and then one week out of the month you don't wear a patch, and that's when you get your, your period or your withdrawal bleed. The um, the benefit is that it's a only once a week thing, so if you can't be trusted to take a pill every day, but you think you have a you know a root, weekly routine that's good enough that you can do something once a week, it can be a good option. The downside is it doesn't it's not good for anybody with sensitive skin. So if you've ever gotten a rash to a band aid or um, latex tape or anything like that, it might not be the best option because you can get some skin irritation underneath of it. Um, the next one that's in that same category, again, progesterone and estrogen is the ring. It's a vaginal ring. Ideally, it sits above your pelvic floor, just around your cervix, kind of high up in the vagina so that it's not, um, felt or annoying or coming out. Um, most of the time people say they can't really feel it after a few days and that their partner doesn't feel it that often, but occasionally people will say their partner does feel the ring during sex and so they'll choose to take it out during sex. And I always mention that that is an option. You just rinse it off, you keep it clean, and then you place it back in within 24 hours um, and it should not affect the effectiveness. Um, again, you got to be comfortable placing that up inside the vagina and then fishing it back out. Um, which some women are very comfortable with and other people are totally weirded out by. Um, so if they're going to do it, I always make sure that we place it once in the office, they feel how it should feel and practice placing it themselves so that they're going to be able to ad um, accurately place it when they get home and it's not just placed just inside the introitus and falling back out within a few hours. Um, otherwise, the same estrogen and everything side effects that we've already talked about. The next thing is the Depo-Provera shot. So that is a progesterone-only option as well. That you have to come in to see a healthcare provider every three months to get. So that's the big downside to that in my mind because I can't go to the doctor every three months. I don't know how people do it. Um, but you got to come in every three months to get the shot. If you do, it's pretty darn effective. The problem being... A lot of people, you know, find it hard to get to the doctor routinely, and so every three months can be a little too much to offer or ask, and people will get pregnant when they miss it for a few weeks. The other thing people often talk about with the Depo-Provera shot is weight gain. The studies that have been done on weight gain and Depo-Provera really show that the um, groups at highest risk for weight gain are teenagers. Um, so I do usually have a th more thorough conversation with teenagers or, or um, young adults about starting Depo. Uh, it seems to be that there are some people that gain a lot of weight and other people who just gain no weight. Um, and rather than averaging the statistic and saying, on average, it's five pounds a year, which is what that average would be, it, it tends to be more split and either 15 pounds or more or nothing, um, which is kind of risky for, you know, a lot of teenagers. So I have a, usually have a thorough discussion with them about the depot. The other thing with the depot people talk about is bone loss. Um, so there's a concern in young women that this is when they're supposed to be having the high levels of estrogen that helps, you know, with their bone deposition and making strong bones for, to prevent osteoporosis in the future. And there was a bone density study that looked at depot over two years, and it showed that women had a decreasing bone density on the depot. The thing is, when you look at the longer term studies, that loss in bone density plateaus after two years. And as soon as they stop depot, even if it's three, four, five years later, 
their bone density returns to normal. So we don't think there truly is any long-term detriments to the bones when using long-term Depo-Provera. So if that's the only thing that works for your patient, it's the only thing she wants, that's perfectly reasonable. You can keep doing it longer than two years. There can be a, a slightly more delayed return to fertility. So if somebody does want to get pregnant, they should continue, consider coming off of it a little earlier than they, than they plan to get pregnant just to allow themselves to return to a normal cycle. All right, so that um, concludes the second tier. So our first tier was our LARCs, our Nexplanon, um, levonorgestrel IUDs, copper IUD, and sterilization. Our second tier uh, was the pill, the patch, the ring, and the depo. And then the things that are really not so effective, so about 90 to, uh, sorry, so over, um, so 10 to 15% of women would get pregnant in a year using these methods. These methods include withdrawal, a diaphragm, fertility awareness methods, and condoms. So again, I always encourage all patients, regardless of birth control method, use a condom on top of it. We, You got to go over the fact that none of these other birth control methods will um, prevent sexually transmitted infections. Um, so anytime you have a new partner, get both people tested definitely before you ditch the condoms. But the condoms alone are not a great form of birth control. So the box or the... Um, or the container of the condoms will usually say like 99.7% effective. That is if they are stored and kept perfectly. And I say this not only for my patients, but all of you out there listening, because medical students too are often surprised by this. So this means the condom was never shipped, stored, or contained in something outside of the normal range of household temperatures. So if it came over in a you know shipping container from another con- country under in you know in which it became 110 degrees inside the container, that latex or that other material is already a little bit compromised. So there are things outside of your control that can compromise the integrity of the condom. Um, and this is really a big deal for more so for um, pregnancy than for STIs. So I always stress to people, you, you got to use them to prevent sexually transmitted infections. But dudes, if you keep them in your wallet, no good. Don't use that. Get a new one. Um, women, even if they keep them in their purse, if you leave your purse in the hot car, if you leave it in the cold car and it gets freezing, all of these things are going to impact the integrity of the material and actually increase the risk of condom breakage and, and um, condom failure. So keep your condoms well. Be safe. Um, the other methods I'm not going to talk too much about fertility awareness. Um, it's really, I mean, I, it's not something I would recommend. There are some good apps if you're going to do it. Um, but there, you know, people, some people do it for religious reasons. I understand that in that case, get a good app and really keep track of it make sure you're well-educated on that method. Um, diaphragms really aren't much of a thing anymore. I haven't had a patient ask about a diaphragm in many years. Um, and then the withdrawal method. I do have some young people asking about this. The withdrawal method, again, not great. Pre-cum, um, pre-ejaculate has semen in it. You can get pregnant before a guy ejaculates. So withdrawal, not that great, especially when you're young. Women are incredibly fertile when they're young. Men, your sperm is incredibly motile when you're young. Um, just be safe, use protection. You ask most of the women in my department, uh, med students going into OB, OBGYN residents and attendings, people who don't want to get pregnant, almost all of us use LARCs. Um, most of us end up using the levonorgestrel IUD because let me tell you, it is so nice not to have a period. Um, so much money you save on pads and tampons you don't even know. And I do openly tell patients I am biased. I tell them I have a levonorgestrel IUD. I love it and I'm completely biased. Um, and so if, I f- if you feel like I swayed you in that way, that is my disclosure. I am completely biased. Um, but those IUDs, if you do become amenorrheic, they're a lovely thing. And they're just so reliable. 
Um, all right, so that's it for the birth control. Hopefully that was helpful. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.